Welcome back to the Strategic Meeting Tech Podcast. The Strategic Meeting Tech Podcast is your podcast source for news and discussion of the meetings and events industry. Each week, we bring you stories of new technologies, new ideas, and new directions that will directly affect all of us in the meetings and events industry. I'm your host, John Trask. I'm a CMP, a CMM, and I'm a 30-year veteran of both the audiovisual and meetings and events industry. Today on the podcast, we're going to have the first part of another two-parter. We're talking to Joan Eisenstadt. Uh, Joan is a previous inductee into the Convention Industry Council Hall of Leaders, and we had a very uh, interesting and lengthy talk with her about uh, the history of the industry, the history of the CIC, um, and maybe some ideas for uh, things to be done in the future, um, particularly relating to the Hall of Leaders and some of the past inductees. So quite a lot of material. We decided to make it up into two uh, programs. We hope you'll enjoy part one today, and part two should be posted tomorrow. And uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we have a special guest on today. Uh, our guest today is Joan Eisenstadt. Hello, Joan. Hi, John. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. It's always uh, so great to have you on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate uh, when you take time out of your very busy schedule to uh, to talk with us about different aspects of the industry. Thank you. I, uh, our conversations always stimulate my brain well, so um, thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, we've uh, we've had a great time on a couple of previous uh, CIC podcasts and uh, talking about MPI previously and Today we're uh, we're talking about the Hall of Leaders, and uh, you're an inductee into the Hall of Leaders, the Industry Hall of Leaders, in 2004. Uh, there's an upcoming uh, class that's going to be uh, added. Uh, it's the 21st annual. Uh, it'll be happening in Las Vegas in October, and so um, we thought we would have you on and just uh, talk a little bit about Hall of Leaders and some of the aspects and ramifications and history, and uh, um, who knows where, what directions that may take us in. Thanks. I think it'll be interesting because I think that, um, sadly, that not only uh, even for people who've taken the the CMP, um, the Certified Meeting Professional um, exam to get designation, um, I think that there is a lack of knowledge about the Convention Industry Council and even its history and why the Hall of Leaders is important. So I'm very grateful you're doing this. Well, I, uh, I mean, I look at the lists of people on there, um, and I see some, uh, some really great names. I've been lucky enough over the past few years to talk to, uh, to some of the recent inductees, and um, it's a, it's a really, um, really diverse group in the sense of history. And we'll get into the history and some of the background of that, um, and maybe not as diverse as, as we would. Uh, have liked in some of the earlier years, certainly, but I know um, it seems to be evolving a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to talk first about your background and um, just maybe sort of some of the things that brought you to the Hall of Leaders and why you were uh, why you were honored there. And uh, one of the first things that jumped out at me was uh, kind of an early technology adopter with the um, meeting. Uh, Oh, I lost it. Their meetings industry mall is what <laughs> the correct right. name. It is, and you know it's interesting. Um, I've um, been a, a, what is now called a social media user since 1992, which was for many people um, eons ago. And <laughs> and I, my first experience was in um, AOL chat rooms um, in a writers group that I still cherish and still have friends to this day. Um, so when Rod Marymore started the Meetings Industry Mall, MIM, um, it was to be a portal 
to all kinds of resources in the hospitality industry. Um, Rod has never, in my view, been recognized enough for his vision um, for what he's done. Um, and he asked me because he knew of my passion for connectivity and, and getting people involved in conversation if I wanted to, um, as part of the, the Meetings Industry Mall, to have, um, to have an area of discussion that, would, that he thought would be a bulletin board, which is the old style of how we used to talk online. Um, in fact, MPI had one shortly, not, not, I don't remember what year it was, it was after um, the MIM list started. Mm-hmm. And so we started that and, and um, it grew pretty quickly to about 13, 14,000 people worldwide um, and went through a series of changes. And of course, then from there, we all know that now there are uh, more groups than you can count on, um, I would say even both of our hands and feet um, <laughs> that we can be part of in terms of electronic communication. So, but it was the first, it was you know 1999 and we were the first and um, it was a very big deal. Well, and, and you also evolved that into um, meeting in real life, and uh, yes, that was pointed out in, in there as well, that it became a forum for actually bringing people together face-to-face as well. We did, and you know what's so funny, John, when I think about the term meetup that happened much later, mm-hmm. and I think about how within, I want to say, within six months of starting the MIM list, um, people would say, you know, are you going to such and such meeting? Can we get together? Um, in D.C., where I live, we, um, for years, would get together once a month. Anybody who was in town or anybody local would get together either for a brown bag lunch um, to carry the conversation forward. So we were doing meetups before there were meetups. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about just the sense of people have always talked about electronic communication uh, or virtual attendance or things like that sort of uh, harming our industry. And I've always seen it as a, as a way to positively augment because at the end of the day, people still want to meet face to face. There's still a benefit to putting people together in a room and letting them interact as opposed to having them just interact in any sort of online format that I've ever been involved in. And it's interesting. Um, it's, it's funny you say that because even thinking back to um, my early days in the writer's um, chat room on AOL, um, uh, and uh, this is not news to a lot of people, but to some it will be. It's how I met the person I'm now married to, um, that, um, because he was part of the writer's group. He lived in, San Fran- in the East Bay area of, near San Francisco, and um, I was going out to San Francisco on business. And so the, the people from our writer's group said, oh, my gosh, we should get together. On the East Coast, a, a number of the women in the writer's group um, and again, remember, this is 1990, between 1992, 1994, mm-hmm. um, those of us on the East Coast um, would get together. In fact, we, a bunch of us took uh, trains to New York City and went to the Algonquin because <laughs> we writers. where else would we go? Right. And, and so I agree with you. I think that people hunger to have that face-to-face contact and what it allows what I think electronic communications, digital communications allow us to do and, and have from the beginning is to start relationships, to get to know people, to, um, to educate in different ways. And that if we take advantage of that, that we can, um, we can do so much more. Um, uh, this is my world peace statement, but sort of we can do much more 
but certainly as an industry, I think that we can grow in what we do and how we see each other um, and how we mentor each other. Well, and, and you know, I, I wasn't going to go through every page of, of a rather lengthy list of accomplishments, but the mentoring idea is is really the, the main thing that I wanted to also bring out, and that is just how much teaching and education and lifelong learning commitment you've made to the industry and how many people you've mentored and, and helped progress in their careers. Um, thank you for saying it. I, I, I can't imagine doing it otherwise. And I'll tell you what's interesting. I, I, I've been thinking about this in the last few days, um, mainly because um, Dan Cormany from um, from FIU has had asked me to talk with one of his soon-to-graduate students. And and she and I had a lovely phone conversation. And, um, and I'm frequently asked to mentor people, um, locally and otherwise. What, I, what I've found is, um, and, and it and what I what I think is tough is that there used to be a group of us here, a group of meeting planners, and we would always refer um, to each other. In other words, if somebody needed um, an information interview or somebody wanted a mentor, there was this group of us, and we would sort of all take turns. I've I've found today, and then maybe it's because we are so involved um, electronically. Um, with digital conversations and our jobs are tougher and all all the things that went into that, that I'm finding that there is, I, I don't want to say less of a desire, the desire may be there, but less of a willingness um, by people in the industry to mentor others. Um, I saw this recently in, in conversations um, with some younger planners, actually not all of them were young, some by experience, um, less experienced planners at a client's office and and people who really want um, others to talk with. And I and so I, um, if you'll let me, I, what I want to, can I, I want to turn this to the Hall of Leaders because yes. I think, um, because I think that one of, one of my frustrations, I, I was tickled to, to be <laughs> inducted. Um, it took a number of times of being, um, of being nominated until I was inducted. And um, if, if for those who've not gone through the list, um, the first Hall of Leaders was in 1985. The first woman wasn't inducted until 1991. Um, and, and, and since then, you know, I think there's, there've been a few years in the recent past where two women have been inducted at the same time, but for years there were none. Um, and, and I think that we, um, have not just me because I love teaching and I love um, I love mentoring I love helping others grow I think that that we who have been inducted have an obligation to help others um, I think that it, to be recognized is lovely um, I've had great recognition from from MPI and from um, from PCMA from SGMP from others and yet, what I don't see is the same commitment to mentoring and nurturing um, informally or formally of uh, certainly of those in the Hall of Leaders. You know, when you say informally versus formally, there was, there was something that I had noted um, that that just kind of dovetails into. I was, I was wondering about industry education in general 
in that we, I talked with Carol Krugman recently, uh, who is a Hall of Leaders inductee this year. And, and it's my astral twin, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a great time talking as well, and, and uh, she was just uh, wonderful to sit down with, and we were lucky enough to be face-to-face in Atlantic City yes. and be able to do that then. Um, but with Carol uh, and the work that she's doing in Denver uh, of formalizing the education around the meetings industry, I wondered your thoughts on that sort of formal education, that having some letters after your name versus the kind of school of hard knocks that I think a lot of people who started in the industry in the 80s uh, had as their method of education, where you were just thrown into the deep end sometimes. I have mixed feelings, and and uh, and so this is where I do my disclaimer. Um, I don't have a college degree. I went to college full time for a year. Um, I had to work um, doing a lot of things to to pay for it. My parents didn't have the money, and and what I learned in that year was, even though I'd come from an incredibly great public school system in Ohio, um, I am not a typical learner. Um, I don't think I could have graduated from college even, I don't think I could have. It's not how I learned. So that's on one side. And so I know that it's not just me. And so I think that um, one of the things that I find interesting in in the U.S. in particular is the conversation about formal education versus um, um, hands-on learning, um, the experiential education that many of us um, got or, or took or took um, and, and did. Um, I think that what I've seen in the, because I, so the other is that I teach in a, um, a certificate program and used to teach in another one. So I believe in some structure of education um, mm-hmm. and I admire what Carol and, and, um, and, and, and Patty Schock and so many others have done, Deborah Breider, um, Tyra Hilliard, in a formal setting. Um, Dan Cormany, I mean, the list goes on. Howard Firetag, who started think started the first PhD program at Virginia Tech. Um, and, and so what I've seen is um, that there has not been, and there isn't still, um, a standard curriculum. I know that through CIC and the CMP process, there are set forth um, what people should know. Right. Um, I also think that until you experience really anything. I mean, it's always said about this profession, meeting planning, that we're not brain surgeons or rocket scientists. (laughs) And and I always laugh because I think, no, we're not. We actually have harder jobs because um, I look at one client in particular who um, is a meeting department of one and does about 500 meetings a year, and I assist with contracts. Mm. Um, So... I think then about, you know, when I've had surgery, brain, or I haven't had brain surgery, but other surgery, you know, you go into the operating room and and the surgeon has a team of people um, to help her and to help make everything happen. Um, Rocket scientists don't work alone. Um, So on the one hand, I think there needs to be this body of knowledge, but the body of knowledge keeps changing. and, And the circumstances under which we do our work change. Um, and so I think there has to be a blend of both a curriculum that people can learn, um, and I think there has to be hands-on education. You know, I think about um, Antioch um, University in Ohio, 
and how they always had, and I, there are other schools like this that had sort of a, a work-study program, where you got to go work while you were doing this. And I look at the students um, in the master's program at George Washington University and master's in tourism, um, most of whom are working in the field in some way while getting their master's. So they're combining that knowledge of really working a meeting versus um, those who are memorizing information and spitting it back, which is the <laughs> thing I literally cannot do, um, which is why not only do I not have a college degree, I don't have my CMP. I, I, I'm, I'm very good at application. I'm very good <laughs> at, at memorizing and spitting back because I can always think, well, what if this happened? Well, and I'll I'll tell you, I never finished my degree either. I, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I walked away from it because I got a job in radio, which is what I wanted to do, and so I stopped a couple semesters short of my broadcasting degree to work in the actual field, and just never quite went back. So <laughs> I know, uh, it'd be interesting. I know of others who haven't graduated; they hide it, and I and I think there ought to be an outing of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Who are, who are successful in terms of what we've accomplished in our lives and that we are continuing to learn and grow and helping others by teaching, whether it's in a formal way or informal way. And I think that what we sometimes forget is that, um, that while we need to have, again, um, there needs to be a framework for what we need to know, um, it can never um, it can never stop because uh, I, I, an example would be I look at what um, what just happened um, with the laws that were passed in um, Mississippi, Tennessee, and North Carolina. Right. Um, and and in talking with colleagues who had to um, because of that go back to their boards and and um, their organizations and look at. Um, what do, what about the contracts we've signed? So a contract is a living, breathing document, even though it's, it's um, lawyers will say it's set in stone, and we know that things change. So again, you have to have the ability to to take what's going on around you and say, this is what I have to do, and and, and not even at that level. So one, you know, another example, and I, and one of the things that I get uh, I, frustrated is probably the best word. There are formulas for, you know, how many people you should put in a room, you know, with the square feet and blah, blah, blah. So my, one of my frustrations in our industry is that <laughs> somebody said they, they know this is my big issue. Um, it's how we set rooms. It's how we create environments or don't for people to learn. So if the industry says, you know, you should do this, and all of a sudden, you've got a trainer like me who comes in and says, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. And you're thinking you're a meeting planner who's memorized the formulas. And you, do, you haven't learned to do, you haven't learned to think on your feet. I think one of the things that I wish would be built into every single meeting planning curriculum is improvisation classes. <laughs> um, because that's what we do. It goes right. back to it's not brain surgery or rocket science. You know, everybody has to do improv. You have to think on your feet. And I think that's where I've seen the formal education in our industry not quite meet what I think it could do to prepare people to work in the industry. Well, and, and, and it's so true about the improvisation. I, I, I can't think of any um, 
any event that I've been around that there hasn't been some factors that have changed and shifted during the course of things. And yeah, it's how you handle that with poise and how you um, keep everybody (laughs) moving forward. And those sorts of things are something that it's really hard to put a formula down and say, you know, when when this happens, this is what you do, because it, it's just all based on the circumstances. And I know in the technology area that I've worked in with, with AV, I walk into a room, I kind of know how it needs to be set right off the bat. Right. Um, but that's based on 20 or 30 years of having walked into rooms and had to set them up. Right, and, and you and I have had conversations about um, how the rooms are set and how they um, they may not take advantage of um, uh, of what people really need to do in order to participate um, fully in the learning of that. Um, I, you know, one of the people I'd love to see inducted into the CIC Hall of Leaders is Paul Roddy, um, who's a psychologist and and wrote a book that. Um, he laughs too and I I can say this because he and I have talked about it it's sort of dull in terms of the the format but the information's great because it's based on how to not only maximize a room set it's based on how to create an environment where people can really learn so this is you know going back to the (laughs) as you and I always do so watch me weave this together so it's also what we teach and it's um, it's how we teach it. It's what we model. It's where I wish, and I know the realities of CIC. I understand the funding issues. I understand they can only do so much. I wish CIC could take a greater role um, with it, with all the, the member organizations to really be more creative in how they did things, to, um, to showcase... something different so that when people um, attend any industry meeting they know that from that they can go back to their own employer or their clients and say this is something we can do Mm -hmm. and and that's also what I think is our obligation as inductees I think that we have to be um, the people who um, having been recognized for whatever the contribution is we're being recognized for, because each of us is different, um, I think that we have to be the people out there who are um, are pushing harder at how this industry can be stronger and better in in many ways, not just room sets, but in in many ways. Well, so maybe having that honor of being inducted in gives you sort of a little bit of a soapbox you can stand upon and and uh, uh, get a little bit more attention uh, when when you speak it gives you some extra weight to your um, your words yeah. because they're coming from experience the answer is yes and so the yes is I think it does and I think that um, I I think that CAC could do more with all of us and we individually could do more with that platform um, it's it's lovely to have the honor, but I will tell you and those who are going to be inducted um, this this year that it, it goes really fast. And then, <laughs> uh, you sort of it's a blur, um, and people will run up to you afterwards and they'll congratulate you, and then all of a sudden it, it, it's sort of it's what I call it's like being on a moving sidewalk and it ends, and and you're caught up a little short, um, mm. and and then we're left 
to our own devices to go out and do something. Um, and and what I think, again, what I'd like to see is that that CIC would take greater advantage of us, give us platforms, um, or the industry associations would. Um, if we are the people who are considered the ones um, who have been, in a sense, at the pinnacle um, of careers, and um, that that we need to do more. We can't just sit back. And so that's part one of, uh, of our talk with Joan. Um, just so much material and so much to cover that we wanted to go ahead and split this up into two pieces. So we'll have part two back tomorrow right here on the podcast. This has been the Strategic Meeting Tech Podcast, your podcast source for news and discussions of the meetings and events industry. You can find out more about Strategic Meeting Tech at our website, www.strategicmeetingtech.com. There you'll find resources and information about how we help planners to create better audiovisual and technology outcomes at their events. Our music is provided by Steph Sachs, under license from the Creative Commons, and you can find out more information and links to the artists there on our website as well. Please send any comments or show suggestions to John, J-O-M, at strategicmeetingtech.com. Thanks for listening.